Right, exactly. And, you know, I find it a little more emotionally um, helpful as well when I tell thrivers when they're going into the holidays, focus on what you will eat, not what you won't eat. It's just a more positive approach. And, you know, again, this diet mentality tells us that most women have been on diets their entire life, and it tells us what not to eat. And it's never been helpful, right? It's never improved our health in any way. So, you know, that's why I say turn it around, reframe it, you trust yourself that your instincts are probably right. You know, really, it's inside you what's, what feels good to your body. Welcome to the My Breast, My Health podcast. My name is Tasha Gandamuhaja and I'm your host, and I'm also a breast cancer surgeon. The aim of the podcast is to help navigate a life through and beyond a breast cancer diagnosis. In these episodes, I have conversations with experts in the field of medicine, surgery, nutrition, as well as the health and wellness space. I also share stories of those who have been affected by breast cancer. Thank you for joining me. In today's episode, I have a conversation with Tamar Rothenberg. Tamar is a registered dietitian nutritionist who has a master's in nutritional science and is also an adjunct professor of nutrition. She's active in various research projects and recently co-authored the study Coping with Cancer in the Kitchen, which is published in Nutrients. Her area of expertise is in helping those who have been affected by breast cancer with their nutritional requirements and advice. She's also an active educator in the field. This episode has so many value bombs and I'm so excited to share it with you. We covered so many topics from debunking various food myths to ways in which we can optimize nutrition in and around breast cancer diagnosis to the role of probiotics and anti-inflammatory foods and beyond. Do listen to the end as Tamar shares some great actionable nutritional advice and she also shares her private Facebook group so you can connect with her and learn more about nutrition specifically in the context of breast cancer. So without further ado, here is Tamar Rothenberg. Hi Tamar, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate your time. How are you today? Good. Thank you. It's such an honor to be on with you. And really the wonders of technology. I'm sitting in LA and uh, you're far. So this works out beautifully. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm in the UK. You're in, in the West Coast of America in LA and eight hours time difference. But yeah, we're still able to chat over the wonders of the internet. So yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Uh, I really wanted for you to come onto the podcast because you have a, a huge amount of expertise in nutrition as you work as an oncology nutritionist. Would you be able to just tell the listeners what it is that you do and what your work entails, please? Sure. So I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, which many people don't realize that's distinct from a nutritionist that we have specialized training and passing national exams. I have a master's in nutritional science, and we usually work uh, clinically or in private practice. So we do have that more specialized uh, knowledge. And um, I have 
I started a private practice really to work with survivors, people who have been through breast cancer um, and are, you know, experiencing a lot of the either what we call late effects or, um, as Dr. Susan Love calls them, collateral damage (laughs) from the treatment. So um, I particularly enjoy working with them. They are... um, you know, the relationship is just very authentic and they are very motivated to make certain changes. So that's the majority of my practice. And I also uh, am an adjunct faculty at Toro College where I teach allied health uh, students, uh, nutritional science. I've also run a research study last year that was published this year. So I have my hands in a lot of different things. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you're, you know, you're clearly a, a huge expert in this field, and I'm so grateful that you're on on today to to share it with with listeners. And one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on is because I think um, nutrition, as as a specialist area, I would say, is something that we don't talk about enough. Whereas I know, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that the impact of food and diet and nutrition on our health in general. But I think specifically for those who have been treated for any cancer, let alone breast cancer, but any cancer really, is huge. And um, would you agree with me that, you know, nutrition as a subject is not talked about enough? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, it's very interesting because it's almost like sometimes there's too much emphasis on it and sometimes there isn't enough. You know, in terms of breast cancer thrivers, I call them, there seems to be kind of two camps where uh, they're at one extreme is kind of, you know, I had cancer, I don't care what I eat anymore. Or the other extreme is trying to eat very perfectly, which is, you know, impossible. Um, and so we need to find that neutral ground and meet people where they're at. I do find, you know, that there's not enough referrals to dietitians. We are the experts, but sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. And so there's all these kind of roadblocks to really getting that evidence-based information. And as far as physicians, there's just not enough time in your appointments. There's so much to go over. And nutrition is kind of the last um, part of that. So it's really hard. There's a lot of challenges with that. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that that for doctors at least, you know, unfortunately I don't have the time to be able to sit um, in front of patients and talk to them about what optimal nutrition should look like. And um, I'm sure you, you'll be talking to us later to tell us what optimal nutrition should look like and should include. But I thought to begin with, because there's so much inf- you know misinformation out there, Perhaps we can talk about some very prevalent myths that surround food and diet and and cancer. And I've got, I think, four myths that we could talk about. Um, would you be up for that? Just four? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, unfortunately, I've only got four, but I'm sure you can you can reel way more than four. But well, let's start with four, and then we can continue. Sure. <laughs> um, so the first the first common myth is um, about sugar. And I think you, I'm sure, have been bombarded by the sugar myth, you know, ad infinitum, really. Can you talk about this myth surrounding sugar and sugar consumption um, in and around cancer? Right. So that's a very strong, prevalent myth. And it did start from a perfectly acceptable explanation of how cancer cells use sugar. 
but it's been misinterpreted, you know, to mean that all sugar is bad or that it directly causes cancer. So certainly no one's saying to sit and have bowls and sugar. We actually don't eat like that anyway. But um, that's not the effect. You know, for example, it started from what we see on PET scans of uh, cancer cells, you know, hyperactively using glucose, but that is the result of cancer. So that cancer is already there and the glucose didn't cause it, the sugar. So, and now it's evolved to some people think they shouldn't have fruit, you know, fruit has sugar and, you know, you're really missing out on what I call these cancer kicking (laughs) nutrients that are so helpful. So uh, we, again, we're back to that kind of neutral ground, keep it neutral, that uh, sugar is not bad or good. It's just, you know, what's right for you during your day. Look at, you know, the, the, the way to look at food is what are you eating most of the day, not every little morsel or bite. So uh, that pattern of eating is more what we focus on right now in terms of cancer prevention or cancer risk. Right. So um, that's really helpful. I think, you know, the myth that sugar causes cancer, um, you know, directly sugar on the table, if you eat that, then that causes cancer. That's not true. Um, If anything, it's the indirect effect of sugar that causes excessive sugar consumption may cause weight gain, which in turn can cause, you know, increase the risk of certain cancers developing. Well, there's there's lots of different foods involved in weight, so we can't even say that sugar is directly related. I mean, certainly soda is an issue because you can um, really not 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 knowingly uh, drink a lot of sugar, right? But yeah. um, I do this activity in my class where we actually show uh, by teaspoonfuls how much sugar is in a glass of soda, and you couldn't sit and eat that much, but you could drink it. So there is, you know, that issue where it's so palatable, we tend to, uh, you know, drink drink it more. So the recommendation is really to kind of avoid these sugar-sweetened drinks. You know, once here and there is not an issue. It's an everyday thing, again. It's a hidden sugar, isn't it? Because I think doesn't like a, a can or a bottle of soda can contain up to seven or 11 teaspoons of sugar. I mean, something ridiculously high, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. 11 is more likely. Yes. Yeah. Great. Okay. So uh, sugar does not cause cancer to grow. So that's an absolute myth. The second myth that I would like to talk about is the controversies surrounding um, the consumption of soy and breast cancer. Okay. So we have 25 years of good research behind soy that shows that um, it's either neutral, meaning it doesn't Um, do anything in your body, or it's preventative or reduces risk. And um, there's even now new evidence that it helps uh, tamoxifen work better. So, you know, certainly we were led astray for many years from, I would say, not bad research, but incomplete research about soy. And because we didn't know enough, um, women were told to avoid it. And that myth persists. And I do hear it even from other health professionals. So it's still out there. But, um, you know, educate yourself, look at the research. It's really there. Um, It's very strong. And soy, the active ingredient, the phytoestrogen, I know it sounds a lot like estrogen, so it's scary. But the it is a plant 
estrogen. So it reacts very differently in our body. It doesn't react like a hormone. So it doesn't grow tumors and things like that. And it even attaches to different receptors in our breasts than the hormone estrogen. So it really doesn't have that effect. So that's really interesting because you're saying that um, soy actually augments um, and enhances the effect of tamoxifen. Right. It's really interesting. And I'm not saying not to take tamoxifen at all, but I'm saying that it helps it along. It works along the same pathways. So, um, you know, if you don't have a condition where you can't have soy allergy or things like that, it's a, it's a wonderful plant-based protein. Um, people are always concerned about protein when they're cutting that meat. And soy is just a wonderful, um, you know, nutritious uh, protein that is really uh, palatable and easy to eat and fine now even. So it's, it's a great option. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Soy is a great source of protein, a plant-based source of protein, isn't it? You can get it from tofu and tempeh. So yeah, soy soy is great. So okay, so the myth that soy causes breast cancer or makes breast cancer worse is debunked. It's it's untrue. So that's that's really useful. So thank you for that. The third myth I'd like to talk to you about, and I'm sure you can um, shed light on this. And I think, again, this is quite a prevalent, uh, prevalent misconception, I think, is that carbs are bad for you. Oh, yes. So we always have the evil nutrient. <laughs> and, it's a bad food, isn't it? Right. So, you know, carbs have had their moment in the, uh, you know, the evil light. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's so much to gain from compl- what we call complex carbs, the whole grains. And, you know, just a little nugget of information, for example, the new immunotherapies we have that are being used for breast cancer and other types of cancer like melanoma, it turns out that your gut health has a lot to do with how you react to to those immunotherapies. And the research is showing that whole grains play a role in, you know, ramping up your gut health so that you react better. So we can't say cut out an entire food group. There's no evidence behind that at all. Even for people who have diabetes, there's a way for them to package the carbs that doesn't cause this rise in blood sugar. So um, there's so many incredible minerals found in whole grains. But not only that, you know, again, going plant-based, you're going to want those options. There's so many different textures Each grain has another type of nutrient and satisfaction level that you're missing out on, you know, and that variety is very important for our gut health. Our gut loves variety. We don't want to live in the same type of neighborhood. We want different neighbors. So um, these are very important concepts that we don't focus on when we just talk about cutting out a food group. So it's unfortunate. Why do you think carbs um, has got such a bad name for itself? Well, I, I, I truly think because the emphasis is on weight gain. And so people are, are fear them because they think they, they cause weight gain. And when we move away from this concept of I'm going to gain weight to more satisfaction with our food and enjoying our food, then we actually seek more variety. So if you're just focusing on weight and, you know, you're going through towards these diet trends, then you're, you're kind of locked into that 
and there's less variety in your food. And as a result, less satisfaction. So I think that's one of the issues with carbs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a shame because I love carbs and I can't, don't think I can live without carbs. So, uh, you know, carbs have been vilified for, for so long and, um, it's a bit of a shame, but so, okay. So that, you know, carbs are not bad for you. No, and also people don't realize vegetables and fruits have carbs. Are you not going to eat them as well? You know? Yeah, that's true. Because I think people think carbs is just, you know, kind of pasta and rice and bread and things, but you're, you're right. Yeah. Carb, this, uh, as a source, carbohydrates can be found in, in many, many other uh, food types. So um, that, that's really, that's really true. Okay. So, the fourth myth or I guess controversy that I would like to talk about is processed foods versus ultra processed foods. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Hey, that's a great topic. Um, there's so many misconceptions in that. And um, what I find is, is very interesting because people tend to lump everything as a processed food when there is a distinction between process and ultra process. So for example, if you take, I don't know if you have these in Britain, these baby carrots, they were a big hit in the US. I think they were invented in the US when, you know, a farmer had all these carrots and he just chopped them and and called them baby carrots. So um, they're not actually grown as baby carrots. The point is they are processed, but they're perfectly good. So we have to kind of get away from this all processed food is bad. So there is a distinction, and and even nutritionally and scientifically, ultra processed foods is another category. So if we look at foods that are, um, you know, they're they're nutritionally poor. um, And so an example I give is if you have an orange, right, an orange off the tree, beautiful, wonderful, smells great. And then you make it into orange juice. So that's your processed food. It's still okay. You know, once in a while, a half glass a day is just fine. But then let's say your next step is to make it into orange candy, you know, kind of this bright orange. And so that's nutritionally poor, doesn't offer you really any health benefits, but it's fun. It's a fun food once in a while, but that's your ultra process. So, and, you know, a lot of companies have tried um, making it sound nutritionally better, like, oh, it has added vitamins or added minerals, that doesn't make it a more nutritional, uh, healthy benefit food for you at all. So um, the problem is with the ultra processed, the issue is that it's all around us, right? So six, something like 60% of the American diet is now made up of ultra processed foods. Wow, so, that's a, that's huge. Yeah, that's huge, and globally, it's becoming more so. So that does have an impact on our health. And again, I'm not saying never have it because if we say never have it, then you know it becomes even more attractive. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> saying there, there's a place for it, and not in every day or in every meal. You know, look at your meal and see how much of it is not this ultra processed. And um, it'll have a, you know, you'll just feel better eating that. And there was a fascinating study that uh, Kevin Hall did for the NIH here on ultra processed foods where they had two groups of people and one group they gave them, um, you know, just regular American diet where 60% is the ultra processed and the other is more of what we call a whole foods diet, you know, lots of fruits, veggies, 
beans. And but they were calorically matched exactly, and they were also right. matched for sugar, carbs, and fat. And the ones who ate the ultra processed foods without even realizing it ate 500 calories more a day without yeah. even knowing it, right? And actually, both groups were satisfied. So, the interesting part is if you're switching more to that plant based, you know, whole kind of uh, foods you're not going to really miss out because they were just as satisfied, which is fascinating to me because people always think they're going to feel, you know, they're missing out. So that's your more cancer protective diet. It really is that pattern of eating and just cutting back on uh, other certain things. How can you though differentiate between a processed food versus an ultra processed food? Right. So, um, okay. So, you know, let's say you have uh, corn, a fresh ear of corn. So fine. That's, you know, barely processed. It's just picked. And then you have a can of corn. Perfectly good. That is processed, right? Yeah. It's uh, been put in a can. It's probably been uh, parboiled or something. Maybe there's a little salt added. So that's processed, but it's still perfectly fine. And a great option, especially now in the pandemic to have these cans of food in our um, pantry. But then we go to corn chips, right? <laughs> Which we love that crunch and manufacturers know that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, so they uh, definitely package that. So the corn chips are, are an example of your ultra processed food. Okay. Yes. Uh, yep. That's that's really helpful actually, because to be fair, it is quite difficult though, isn't it? To differentiate between processed and ultra processed. But right. yeah, it's it's something that I guess we need to be a little bit more mindful about. Yeah, I think mindful is a great word. Like if you're able to, if you can afford it, you know, you are able to shop for it, then um, being mindful is a, a wonderful skill and a wonderful uh, way to go about it. That's great. Now, so I've done my four myths. Um, <laughs> um, and then <laughs> would you be able to mention a few more that you think are quite prevalent out there? Um, well, I think you covered the basics, you know, it, what I hear from thrivers are what to cut out, you know, they want to know what they should cut out. And uh, when we focus on the, you know, when we talk about all these myths that are out there, then it's, you know, these myths distract from really the way we want to eat, because we're so focused on the myths. And um so that's an issue, you know, just it, it takes us away from what's important, right? Of course, the nutrition and of course, movement is so important. We hear less about movement. I mean, I know the message is out there, but we hear more about soy and sugar when really movement, you know, movement and nutrition together, there's some, the new research is something like a 50% reduction in recurrence risk. That's huge. And so why are we focusing on not to eat soy, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think we should be talking about benefits of nut nutrition and the benefits of certain food types rather than perpetuating these myths that are not particularly helpful. That brings us very nicely to the subject that I would like to talk about with you as well is this idea of how can we optimize our nutrition post breast cancer treatment because you know as you as you rightly mentioned earlier there are lots of i think people can be quite confused as to what they should and shouldn't eat after they've had a, a breast cancer treatment or even if whilst they're going through breast cancer treatment so would you be able to talk a little bit about that 
Yes, I'd be so happy to talk about it. And also, I know this sounds a little crazy, <laughs> but we have to get back to kind of trusting our body. And I know after breast cancer, it's it's very difficult. We feel our body betrayed us. And I hear this often from thrivers that they don't trust their body. They don't trust their GI symptoms. You know, they went through so much. It's a trauma. Um, so we tend to focus on the myths or on one food that will help. And um I think it's a very important process to getting back to trusting our body, trusting our instincts, and to kind of reframe things that even though we had breast cancer, our body is still fighting for us. And what tools can we use to help our body fight for us? And uh, to me, that's a kind of a more positive way to go about it. And, And that brings us more to prepare ourselves to um, make those changes rather than saying, um, I can't have this or I shouldn't have that. So I just wanted to throw that in first. So, um, you know, the kind of the basics is, is can be very boring, right? It's add more fruits and veggies. <laughs> There's tremendous research behind that. We have um, 10,000 phytochemicals. These are plant nutrients that fight for us, and they're only found in plants. And these are disease fighters. So we do want to add in those fruits and veggies. In the U.S., uh, it's really uh, discouraging because 90% of people do not have one serving of veggies a day. And we're talking about one serving is, let's say, uh, uh, apples would be about 75 grams. So people are not having that. Um, and then, or double that for leafy greens. So really the optimal way is five or more servings. And it's not, you know, you can see it as over a week. It's not every day I have to get my five in. Um, Over the week, what did I eat? Did I throw a little more color on my plate? Did I cook a whole grain? You know, things like that. Um, And then add that into, of course, any type of movement. It doesn't have to be a specific type. It doesn't even have to be a specific number. Just get out there and and find a way to move. And then uh, more whole grains because it does fuel energy. Um, and it gives you, as I said, more choices. After we've had these taste changes, if you've been through chemo, um, you do want to experience more flavors, right? And then, of course, herbs and spices. They're, I call them little nutrient bombs because yeah, that's they're great. That's yeah, great. They're really concentrated forms of nutrients that do have an impact. And the two things I say to add is of course, soy foods, because they are protective. They're a quality plant protein and flax seeds. If you can, flax seeds are now shown to help as well with breast cancer recurrence. They have those omega threes, which we need. So, um, you know, when we look at the whole picture, what does a thriver need to focus on? It's uh, strengthening, you know, brain, bones, and heart, right? These are things that have been affected by treatment. And so we do want those plant foods affect all of those. Um, They contain fiber, the backbone of plants. And uh, we know, actually, that's one of the recommendations that helps reduce the risk of breast cancer, Uh, Heart disease, you know, it draws out excess estrogen and cholesterol, balances hormones. And then, of course, it affects heart health because we're naturally having kind of less saturated fat, which is also a recommendation for thrivers. So we do have specifics that we know about that really help us um, build up our 
our strength and uh, help us fight off these, you know, chronic diseases as well. Right. That's really helpful. Thank you. So what you're describing is essentially diversifying what you have on your plate. And rather than taking things out of your plate, in other words, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that. What you're saying is we probably ought to be adding into or onto your plate. Right, exactly. And, you know, I find it a little more emotionally um, helpful as well when I tell thrivers when they're going into the holidays, focus on what you will eat, not what you won't eat. It's just a more positive approach. And, you know, again, this diet mentality tells us that most women have been on diets their entire life, and it tells us what not to eat. And it's never been helpful, right? It's never improved our health in any way. So, you know, that's why I say turn it around, reframe it, trust yourself that your instincts are probably right. You know, really, it's inside you what's what feels good to your body. Because I think we've been somewhat ingrained to to think that actually adding any food onto your plate is bad for you. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, we're supposed to have a certain amount of calories on the plate. So if you add stuff onto your plate, actually... That might, you know, because it's all about the, the warrior of weight gain and those kind of anxieties. So, so therefore, I think it's it has always been easier to okay, I've got a plate, I'm not going to add this because I've ha- I've got enough of this, this, and this. I'm not going to add on on onto it. But actually, you know, those what you've brilliantly described the nutrient bombs. I mean, you know, herbs are so nutrition; they've got such amazing uh, benefits, and you can add herbs very easily onto your plate, can't you? Yeah, and they add so much flavor and variety, and they're just fun, fun to eat and fun to work with. And yes, I I totally agree with you about the uh, focus on adding in is kind of a danger signal to us. And that goes back to we don't trust our appetites. You know, we're going to eat too much. And so I'm a big proponent. I'm now finishing up certification in intuitive eating. I do find that that works really well for thrivers that we can, we should start trusting our appetites. And when you do that, the anxiety level of food goes down and you, you, you do trust yourself a little better too. So um, I find that just works brilliantly for thrivers. They tend to eat the way that's more healthful, um, not overeat. And I'm not saying it's a diet, but because they're paying attention to their appetite and what satisfies them, it works really beautifully. So, um, you know, it's just, again, back to that uh, reducing the uh, food fears and anxiety over our appetite and our body that we have to really stretch ourselves to enjoy this process, enjoy eating after, for example, chemo. I mean, eating was was just very hard, right, with the taste changes and all the GI symptoms. Let's get back to really enjoying our food. Yes, because, you know, you have so many effects after cancer treatment. You know, as you said, you, you may lose your, your sense of taste, maybe smell. You might lose your appetite. You know, there's increased inactivity due to the, the, the treatments that people might have had. So it, it can be difficult to enjoy your food when your, your taste isn't as acute as before. And I would, then say all the more reason to, to, as you said, trust your gut and trust your instincts. And if you enjoy certain foods to heighten that taste, to enable you to enjoy your foods more, then you should definitely explore that. 
Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I love that. And, you know, we find that with COVID. I've had a few clients who had COVID who were so distressed, they lost their sense of smell and taste and how distressing that is when that happens. And then, so yes, we do, we do want to take this opportunity to, uh, you know, enjoy your food and then you'll enjoy life more even, you know, it really works together. (laughs) No, no. Yeah, definitely. Especially around these times. Right. So, um, you know, food can be so beneficial in so many ways. And if you, if you can, gain a certain amount of joy from your food then definitely just explore explore what what you enjoy and and double down on that right and also i want to say that you know there's a lot of hesitancy to enjoy things like frozen foods or canned foods and you know we're finding it particularly important now to have those in our pantry with the pandemic and they're equally nutritious if not more frozen foods i i did a lot of research because i did a a webinar for cancer survivors on frozen foods, and they have even more antioxidants because of the way um, they're stored and processed. So we don't have to turn away from those foods. Yes, the texture is going to be different. We can work around that with cooking skills, but um, you know, don't forego those other types of foods. To- yes, because frozen frozen foods are you know they they get picked and they get frozen more or less immediately, don't they? So they completely right. lock in all the nutrients and the the goodness more or less straight away. Right, and it's so interesting because I actually it was so fascinating. I went on an orchard tour with farmers. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and literally the uh, they're picked and the processing plant is twenty minutes away, so they're right. frozen right away in you know sterile environment. And because it's so interesting, because what happens is the antioxidants are actually frozen into place. And when the cells disintegrate, once they're defrosted, the antioxidants come out. So it's even that's why they're even higher in frozen foods and fresh foods and nothing against fresh foods. But, you know, there is this kind of hesitancy where frozen foods aren't as good. And it's just not true. Yeah, I think there is a slight, I don't know, a snobbery aspect about frozen foods in a way but actually okay the texture as you said may not be there but let's not let's not dismiss the the benefits of frozen foods it is actually extremely nutritious right and i'm partial to frozen edamame because sometimes it's very hard to find it fresh or you know it goes bad pretty quickly so frozen edamame there's no difference and you know it's great to have on hand no, that, that's a good tip, actually, because you're right. Fresh edamame is quite difficult to get, so I'll look out for I'll look out for frozen frozen ones in in the frozen aisle, definitely. Um, so another area that um, I think is slightly hot right now in terms of being a trendy topic is the idea of anti-inflammatory foods. Right. So you know, again, a lot of misconceptions in what is an anti-inflammatory food. There are certain foods that are more, um, it, when we mean anti, they don't cause inflammation like some other foods. They actually can tamp down inflammation as well. So, you know, besides nutrition, though, stress can raise inflammation being, you know, not moving enough. So we have to see it as a whole package, not just the food. But there are certain foods that I find food sources that are better 
um, for um, an anti-inflammatory pattern. A lot of it is based on the Mediterranean diet, which is very strongly recommended for thrivers. Now, there are different types of Mediterranean diets. People tend to think there's only one way. So if you look along the Mediterranean, there's many different countries, right? They all eat differently. So it's not one pattern of Mediterranean eating. And we have even an Asian um, type of Mediterranean diet. And we have an African heritage diet. That's what we call a Mediterranean diet. So it's not just one way of, you know, eating that. It's really keeping your cultural foods as well. But right. right? So within those foods, we have sources like um, what we call probiotics and prebiotics these are um, foods that have additional benefits to the way they're digested and used in our body. So, you know, a lot of that has to do with fermented vegetables like sauerkraut, kimchi. So, um, yeah, so those we have actually new types that are called postbiotics. <laughs> they go beyond uh, probiotics and then symbiotics. These are foods that work alongside. So it's a whole new beautiful area of research. But yeah. um, but basically, these are foods that feed your microbiota, right? They feed, they give more bacteria, and they also um, promote bacteria. This is much needed bacteria in your gut health. So, you know, they're live bacteria. And so these are even basics like apple, um, again, your flax seeds, oats, banana, garlic, onions, um, asparagus, beans. These are all tremendously beneficial. So that's one source of your anti-inflammatory food. And then others are very simple, like vitamin C. So your citrus, tropical fruits, berries. Berries are great for brain health after chemo brain. Right. Uh, bell peppers. Bell peppers have um, something like 75% more vitamin C than an orange. So don't forget about those colorful foods. And then zinc. So zinc uh, works along with other, um, you know, compounds to uh, tamp down inflammation. So again, beans, <laughs> beans, 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 and seeds, <laughs> right? Your seeds, again, in terms of herbs and spices, seeds are one of those things that can add a lot of flavor and omega-3s, for example, magnesium. Um, I would include dark chocolate, right? Because it has these flavanols and zinc. And then nuts. So nuts are also, if you're going more plant-based, nuts, you know, give you a lot more food satisfaction and flavor. So, And then vitamin D, which usually you probably would need to take a supplement, um, especially in the winter. But we really can't get enough from food. Um, uh, unless in the, U the United States now, we have a new type of mushroom where they're um, putting it under a UV light, and it actually um, brings out the vitamin D that you can then eat those mushrooms and get your vitamin D source as well. So that's an interesting new source. Oh, that's interesting. When we go to the supermarkets and you buy a packet of mushrooms, I think I've seen it anyway that on you know, there's a sticker to say this is good source of vitamin D. I'm not sure that's just because it's a mushroom or mushrooms, but oh no, whether that, that may mean yeah, that's interesting. Or, yeah, or whether it's it's been kind of intensified to provide a higher concentration of vitamin D. I, I don't know, but definitely it was you know I remember getting a packet of mushrooms and I saw that and I thought well, that's a really interesting yeah. thing to put on a packet. Yeah. And it's a perfectly safe process. I mean, you could even, I haven't done this, but 
you could leave your mushrooms out in the sunlight for a day or so and get some vitamin D that way too. All right. Um, I didn't know that. Yes, you could. Ah, Yeah, I might do that then. Although (laughs) to be fair, we don't have much sun to shine at the moment. It's pretty, (laughs) it's pretty dull and gray. So it's not like you guys, you know, you're blessed with sunny days most most days if not 365 days of the year so you'll have to come for a visit and i'll serve you mushrooms <laughs> oh fabulous i'll i'll take you on on that one yeah take you up on that one but can't wait like that's really that's really helpful actually and it sounds like a very interesting food area this anti-inflammatory foods and i think there are lots of you know cultures around the world who are very into pickling and preserving and it's interesting to understand that actually these processes are very helpful and beneficial. Yeah, and I think the more now in the pandemic people are doing a lot more home cooking and experimenting, that would be one fun thing. You can buy these kits even or just use a mason jar and start pickling and uh doing it yourself and it's it's a fun project to take on. That's that's really interesting and that's really helpful to kind of bring that to the fore of of our uh, of our minds because it's not something you know you would normally think about but uh you know so far we've been talking about a variety of foods but there is a common thread in that and I don't know if you've noticed it but the majority of the foods that we've been talking about is actually plant-based food and I think that is very timely in that obviously this is January and I think it happens in the States, but definitely in the UK, Veganuary is a thing where, you know, it kind of kickstarts the new year and people are, um, you know, wanting to kind of do a positive, make a positive change in their lifestyle and are encouraged to go plant-based. So what are your thoughts about plant-based foods, plant-based diet in general? Right. And um, I love that push that you have. It's not so much, uh, it's promoted here, but the, really the food companies don't really pick up on it. So it, it gets less attention. But I think it's so important because first of all, people need to be exposed to a, um, good plant foods, right? Not kind of boiled vegetables, but or maybe they have some associations from childhood that aren't <laughs> as good. But um you know, this is one of the things we did in our study that was so fascinating to watch for people who didn't know how to cook plant foods or didn't know what to even do or buy. And so we had um, part of the study was a cooking demo and tasting. And um, it was all plant foods. And they were amazed at what you could do and how good it tasted. You know, the tasting was kind of the best part. So that exposure actually led them to um, improve their cooking skills and get into the kitchen and start experimenting and enjoying their food. And then what we found was that increasing um, their cooking skills actually reduced fatigue. It was so fascinating. And I think that's because they didn't have as much of what we call this decision fatigue. You know, what should I eat? Um, I don't know how to cook this. So you have to kind of match your skill level, um, you know, really build up a little of those cooking skills and then run with it. And people were really increasing their plant foods and enjoying them. And, you know, I'm always looking for new ideas. I'm talking to chefs about what they do. Um, It's a good idea to go to a vegetarian restaurant and just see how good some of those foods are. Um, There's a chef who was telling me he takes beets. I mean, he does amazing things. He 
he puts them in a pit and smokes them. And I'm like, wow. oh my gosh, I am all over this. <laughs> so sounds delicious. I know, right? Um, but I think people find they don't know what to do once they want to cut meat. Like I hear this all the time. What well, what am I gonna eat? Or am I gonna have enough protein? And you know, that's a misconception. You can get plenty of protein. In fact, our um dietetic association has a white paper that you can meet all your nutritional needs, whether going vegetarian or vegan. So there's no problem with that. Um, but they want to know what to replace meat with, right? They, they, it's been a part of our plates for so long, right? So, um, I like to show them different plates, um, different ways of, um, you know, structuring your plate so that you won't miss the meat. But a lot of it has to do with, you know, maybe adding in in what I call an imami-like flavor. It could be shiitake mushrooms, which has breast cancer protective um, effects, It could be miso, it could be a little soy sauce and other types of mushrooms. These are all umami foods that add that meat-like flavor um, that people, you know, when you experiment, you find that you actually like them even more. That umami thing is so, it's so important, isn't it? Because I think vegetables, if you have the know-how and the expertise, you can make amazing, amazing dishes with vegetables alone. And I think that the anxiety that comes with um, plant-based food and a, and a plant-based diet is I don't know what to do with all these plants because normally if, you know, you'd have, I don't know, a piece of meat on your table and you sprinkle a few um, few vegetables and, you know, you might have a bit of, I don't know, pasta or rice or something like that. And and that's that's it. But the, the meat part of that plate usually takes center stage, whereas to then – you know, catapult the vegetables onto the center stage, I think brings with that anxieties and and difficulties in how to create a a plate that tastes good enough for us to eat. Right. And that is a very common concern. Um, It's been so much a part of the American diet. Um, And I've worked with uh, American Institute for Cancer Research. They have what's called the new American plate, which I really love to use. And it shows you, you know, again, two thirds of your plate are plant foods and grains. And if you still want to have some of that meat, you know, or if your family is hesitant, you know, you think it's too big of a change. So you have a quarter of your plate um, till you're ready to go more plant-based. So you don't have to start all out. Um, That's why I like the idea of the veginary. Um, (laughs) You know, it's kind of like easing you into it. So we have to, you know, meet, meet people where they're at. Yeah, yeah. And January is, yeah, Veganuary is a big thing. And I think it gives permission also to people who, you know, may not, you know, may not want to embrace uh, plant-based food completely. And, you know, you may want to dip their toes into plant-based eating. And Veganuary, I guess, gives them the the choice and, and the opportunity to do that. And some, you know, I think people are exploring eating plant more and you know reducing their meat intake and I think that's becoming more prevalent as the years have gone by for sure yes you know in fact it's it was nominated as the trend of last year going into this year more about plant-based diets so I think especially younger people are interested more in in that and and you know in a healthy way not in a restrictive way doing it as a way to lose weight or you know just as a way to explore 
new foods and variety. That is, you know, kind of the optimal way to look at it. And, you know, one thing people forget is, is plant foods have a lot of fiber, which again, very important for breast cancer thrivers. We need about 30 grams a day and meat has no fiber. So, you know, we talk about usually what meat has in zinc and certainly has some certain minerals, iron, but it doesn't have fiber. So we can only find that in plant foods. That's why the majority of our plate, we want it to look like that. So, yeah, so we've talked about, you know, nutrition, and I think you touched um, uh, briefly uh, throughout our conversation about the the impact and the benefit of exercise. And I think I would really love to talk about the concept of cancer rehab, because this is a concept that is emerging. Definitely, I think it's it's becoming more prevalent in the States and is emerging here in the UK. Can you talk about about that and what, you know, holistically what that involves? So, yeah, I mean, we have millions of cancer survivors, right? But once you're done with your active treatment, or even if, you know, you're metastatic and you're on, you know, kind of maintenance, there's there's nowhere to land, right? You're just kind of like, well, see you around. Uh, there's a <laughs> yeah, yoga class somewhere. <laughs> Um, but that's not enough. We need to meet survivor needs in a much better and organized way. And there, there is more of a push for that. It's now in the cancer guidelines um, that there should be more um, proactive, uh, you know, ways to meet them and have programs. But it's a matter of economics, right? It's not necessarily covered by insurance because you're done with your active treatment. Um, yeah. There are wonderful nonprofits like in L.A., we have the cancer support community with which I work with, which has all free programs, um, no matter what level of treatment or time, you know, stage that you're at, um, that are very wonderful. But it's not enough. You know, I know that I have clients that come to me and say, I want to move more, but this hurts and that hurts. You know, the aromatase inhibitors affect joint and bone pain. And even just a matter of um, when you reduce estrogen, you tend to be more sedentary. And just telling people that, it, they're like, oh, my gosh, I thought it was me. And, you know, it's a natural process. Um, yeah. And they're not being told these things that will reduce their anxiety. So we have to work with, you know, that's that was one of the hopes of this the study that we did that it's going to go national for uh, survivors to improve their nutritional skills. But uh, other ways are we have a, uh, for example, in LA, we have them, they're physical medicine and rehab physicians, PMNR. And um, I don't find people are referred to them often enough, but they really go through what are your pains, you know, what's, what are your physical symptoms? And these are the best referrals I can give you, whether it's a, you know, oncology physical specialist, a rehab specialist, uh, occupational therapist, and and start, you know, this is your recovery. This is your time. For, this is your quality of life. So, um, but I would say it's still in, an, it's in its infancy. <laughs> we're, right. we're nowhere where we should be. <laughs> you know, the, the concept of, um, you know, people finishing their treatment and then, and then what, you know, and that is, I find the, the toughest time for, for many people because, you know, throughout their, their, their cancer treatment, they have hospital appointments and, you know, there's always interactions between 
their doctors um, and, you know, their, their breast kinesis in the UK. But then once your active treatment ends, then you're kind of left on your own. And, you know, bar maybe an annual checkup, say, or, you know, sometimes six monthly checkups, that's it. You know, you're kind of left to fend for yourself. And, you know, it must be a really difficult time and a really can be confusing time to be in um, and to find mechanisms and strategies to be able to to help move forward in the best way possible, you know, not only from the 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 physical side, but also on the mental side and, you know, nutritional side. So I think as a concept, it's it's a really fantastic concept. And if it were made, you know, more structured as a service provision, that would be fantastic. Right. I so agree. I mean, we're failing. We're failing thrivers. We really are. And that's when they're actually so motivated to make changes. And we're not taking advantage of that springboard. Right. So we, you, that's just what I can say is we're failing them. And uh, I think you had characterized it beautifully. You said, you know, we had this umbilical cord throughout treatment and it just stops. And, uh, you know, it, again, it reminds me so much of the pandemic. We go through it we're white knuckling it through it, right? It's scary. Yeah. And then the vaccine comes and, and we're like so hopeful and we're like, okay. And we kind of let go and all yeah. the emotions comes, you know, pouring out. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's very similar to the cliff we have at the end of treatment. Like, uh, okay, I'm, I don't have to white knuckle it. I've been through it, but you know, where do I go now? And I still have symptoms. So, uh, yeah, that's a very important um, a need that we need to address. Yeah, and I guess the best advice that that is out there would be to uh, make sure you know you exercise as much as you can, to make sure that you eat as best as you can, and hopefully you know our conversation today would highlight the, the things that are important and the things that you know are not important and you can forget about and all the myths that we've hopefully debunked, and also. Um, you know, looking after um, our mental health and to be mindful of of that as well, because especially around this these times, um, looking after our mental health is so so important. Right. I mean, uh, it's almost as if we're all cancer patients now, right? We're all experiencing that isolation and fear, and so you get a little uh, taste of what cancer patients go through. It's very tough, but we go through it. <laughs> we come out on the other side. You know, I hope this was helpful, just sifting through some of this misinformation and uh, trusting yourself to know the right thing and also advocating for yourself, you know, it, as much as you can. I know it takes energy. Honestly, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And I know I'm in no doubt that many listeners out there would have uh, benefited from from this episode for sure. Before we go, a few things. Firstly, what general advice would you give to those who are going through breast cancer treatment and for those who are who have finished and um, have come to, uh, through the other side and also for those who are living with uh, a metastatic diagnosis what what general advice would you give um well you know there's different uh, parts to it right so when you're in treatment um, I, I think some people are very disappointed. They're told to eat whatever they want, and that's disappointing to them. But the truth is, yes, it's true, because you want to you finish treatment. The goal is to finish treatment, 
And so eat all the foods, even foods that you think are bad for you. There's nothing wrong temporarily. If you're keeping your calories in and, you know, finishing treatment is, is a wonderful thing. Um, and then after, as a survivor, it's going to be a little different. You're going to, you know, try to stretch yourself and get those cooking skills if you need them. And um, adding in basic foods, beans, nuts, seeds, cruciferous vegetables, cabbage, berries, mushrooms, all that wonderful um, nutrient-packed foods that you can during the day. And, you know, make room for those fun foods. No one's saying not to have them. Brilliant. And yeah, so, you know, have a cheeky chocolate. Uh, as you said, you know, chocolate is very, very good for you or a cheeky cake. So yeah, don't <laughs> don't deprive yourself from all of these, you know, treats that you can have, right? I'm going to call them cheeky from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, if people would like to find you, where where should they go? Um, sure. So um, on Facebook, you can just Google my name, Tamar Rothenberg RD. I have a website with a blog that I think is very helpful for thrivers about nutrition. Um, and then uh, I'm on Instagram as breast cancer nutritionist. And I'd love for people to join. I, I now have a private Facebook group called Fresh Start for Thrivers. You can just um, search that as well. And I will be coming out with a series of courses uh, specifically aimed at reducing food fears for thrivers. So we'll, we talk about plant-based strategies, um, the research behind what foods are helpful, and then um, improving your body image after breast cancer. So I should be coming out with that very soon. That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. And I will leave all of these links in the show notes. So definitely check the show notes so you can connect with Tama. So thank you so much once again. Really, really appreciate it. There's so much we can talk about. We can go on forever. But thank you so much for your expertise. And um, yeah, you know, I hope I can meet up one day and we can hang out in, in LA. That'd be fabulous. Hang out with the mushrooms. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Getting the mushrooms out in the sun and we can hang out together. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor and I really appreciate your work here and spreading the message. You're doing just invaluable work. Thank you so much. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you on. Take care now. Take care. Well, that was so much fun, wasn't it? Thank you so much to Tamar once again for her time and expertise. Do check Tamar's website. She can be found at www.tamarrothenbergrd.com. So that's T A M A R. R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G-R-D dot com. You can find Tamar on Instagram and she is at Breast Cancer Nutritionist. And Tamar's private Facebook group is A Fresh Start for Breast Cancer Thrivers. And I will leave all of these links in the show notes at mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 26. Now, if you have been enjoying these episodes and have derived value from them, then I would be ever so grateful if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast. What this does, it actually makes the show more discoverable to more people. And so we could spread the message and hopefully benefit more people at the same time. If you haven't done so yet, do hit that subscribe button, which means that all the new upcoming episodes will be dropped straight to your podcasting app of choice. So... All that's left for me to say is stay healthy, stay safe, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care. Bye.